Okay, Mark chapter 15. Folks, this is it. We are one, this is the last, next to the last week we're going to be in Mark's gospel. Next week we finish the, with the resurrection. And so I suppose if there were a handful of messages that you could put in a, I don't know, um, top five list, I would think this sermon on the crucifixion has to be one of them, right? It's the message of the cross. And, and so I understood when I sat down to study it and figure out what to say to you that we, we're going to experience a, a, a significant challenge in my, in my mind, and that is because we are so used to the cross. It's just so, such a part of our understanding and our experience that uh, it sometimes can miss us. And so we have to deal with it in such a way as to experience it as Mark, I think, portrays it in all of its horror and all of its beauty, what God intended through this work of Christ on our behalf. But to be honest, it really is pretty familiar, right? We're so accustomed to it. It's everywhere. You see crosses everywhere. You drove by a 30-foot one on the way here today. Did you notice that one out there? Probably not. Um, it ends up as jewelry around our necks or our ears or our fingers. It can be a figure of speech. Oh, that's just the cross he has to bear. It can end up on a T-shirt because it's, after all, a cool logo. It, it can be on a bumper sticker. It can be a lucky charm that people use to ward off evil in their minds. Um, and to be honest, it's strange. It's it just sort of weird. If you, if you, for instance, knew someone who died by the... Uh, the electric chair, if you went and had little gold earrings of electric chairs made and put on, people would go, that, that guy's strange. But we were this object of torture and suffering and death around, and it's, it's a little weird. Now, I want you to keep that thought in mind because that's just how scandalous the cross was to Mark's audience. It would be as if you're wearing an electric chair or putting it on your T-shirt. It looks weird, Okay. It is a horrific form of capital punishment that the Persians invented, but the Romans um, really got right. They perfected it. It was so bad that it was reserved for only the worst of worst criminals. And in the Jewish mind, this idea of crucifixion and being nailed to the cross was as if you were saying, you are definitely cursed by God. In fact, Deuteronomy has, in chapter 21, anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. That's how a Jewish mindset understood it. In the Roman mind, thought it was equally as brutal. One uh, Roman philosopher said about the cross this. He said, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of the Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. The, the cross is far darker, more brutal, and more horrendous than most of us in America who sit in evangelical churches and have Bibles are even accustomed to. This is really ridiculously horrendous. The Apostle Paul, in describing how people respond to the cross in 1 Corinthians, talked about it being foolishness. Crazy people embrace the cross. He talked about the scandal of it and the folly of it. But Paul, we know, also believed in it. And he said in Galatians chapter 6, I don't want to boast in anything but the cross. That's what I do. Maybe you've heard of the author Max Lucado. He wrote this about the cross. The cross rests on the timeline of history like a compelling diamond. History has idolized it. It has despised it. It has gold-plated it. It has burned it. It has worn it. It has trashed it. History has done everything but ignore it. Never has timber been regarded so sacred. Today is the message of the cross. 
And I'm going to tell you what I think you probably already know is coming. It is not foolish. It is exactly what Paul said. It's the power of God to those who are being saved. It is the wisdom of God on display. It is the love of God in more clear depiction than anybody could ever perceive. It is his mercy and his grace clearly portrayed for sin and sinners. All right? That's the wonderful story of the the cross. So let me just tell you before we get into it how I want you particularly to hear this. If you're a believer in this room, by that you have confessed Jesus, this suffering Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you've turned and repented from your sins, and you trust in him. That's a Christian. Here's how I want you to hear it. This is it. This is it. There is no greater subject matter for us to think about or to remember than what God did to provide for us and our sin. Nothing more to consider than this. It is no greater resource for joy and worship. I sit over here every Sunday, and I watch most of you, and whatever it is you raise your hands to, and whatever it is you sing to, my hope it is this suffering Jesus who provides a righteousness for you. Otherwise, there's no worship. It's just religion. And if it isn't true, and it isn't for you, embraced by you, there is no hope, okay? So this is it. No other event in all of human history can shape how we see ourselves or how we can see God's intentions for us. The cross tells it all. If you're an unbeliever, and that has to be your confession, not my observation, I wouldn't know. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you are pretending. We had, uh, we had almost, I think we had 20 children dedicated at 8 o'clock. So there was 40-some people up here, okay, plus their children. And you know what happens at baby dedications, don't you? Everybody shows up. It's kind of like last week at baptisms, aunt and uncles and cousins and everybody showing up because it's a special moment for you, I guess. And, and so sort, all sorts of people come. And so I told them what I told you. I mean, you might come because church is a thing to do. You might be appeasing a loved one, a husband, a wife, a mom, a dad, whatever. But you would say of your own heart, I'm not a... I'm not a follower of Jesus. I mean, not mad at him or anything, but that version of commitment and repentance, that's not mine. Here's how I want you to hear this. We've said over and over again in this gospel study that the the claims of Christ are exclusive claims. They're one and only. He describes it that way. There is no other way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So therefore, if these exclusive claims of Christ and Christianity, if you see the cross, here's my promise to you. It will make sense. If you see the cross, if you really see it, it's like Peter, who at this point in the storyline is afraid and cowering. By the time we get to Acts 4 and the Holy Spirit overtakes him, he preaches the second greatest sermon I think has ever been preached. And in that sermon, he declares to people, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. It was the cross of Christ that got him there, Okay. It was the reality of what Jesus is doing at this moment in time. And so I, uh, I know it's super important, so let's stop and ask the Spirit to teach us all. Believer, unbeliever, skeptic, hard-hearted, wounded, whoever you are, let's pray that the cross, the message of the cross is perceived by everybody here. So let's, uh, let's pray and ask for his help. Father God, I thank you for Jesus, the Savior, I thank you for this moment in our study where we get to look at his suffering. As hard as it will be to look, uh, I pray, God, that we will look clearly at it knowing it was for us and that, God, you would do the miracle of saving 
and revealing yourself. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, here's how I'm going to deal with this. There's so much in this text, but I'm simply going to tell the message of the cross, and it's going to be in story form. There are many stories that are told in this narrative. Here's the first one. This is a story of ridicule. Look at verses 16 through 20. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Okay, just picture this scene Uh, Most writers would say that where where Jesus has been taken is Herod's palace, a very posh, uh, prominent location on the western hill of Jerusalem. In Herod's courtyard is a whole battalion, a Roman battalion, mocking Jesus. Now, let me just paint the picture clearer so that we understand how huge this moment was. This word for whole battalion, your text might even say whole company, is a Greek term used for one-tenth of a Roman legion. If you do the math, it's 600 at least soldiers in a courtyard at Herod's palace mocking Jesus. Now, that alone is scandalous, but now let's back up just a little bit to chapter 15, verse 15. You don't have to turn there, but this is, this is after Jesus has been scourged. I want you to see this. This is so absurd, but this ridicule is happening to the most suffering of people. You remember the scourging? We talked about it last week. This flagrum, this whip with multiple strips of leather. Within that leather was tied bones and pieces of metal. It was intended when you whipped the victim that it would tear the flesh. It was intended to do do great harm, okay? It was to lacerate and strip the person. And many Many historians would write that what it did was that it would expose bone and even intestines. And the intention of it was to shorten the duration of the crucifixion, make it brutal, make it hard. And so that's what Jesus has gone under. The scourging was so brutal, in fact, many, many of these criminals would die before they even got to the cross. So Jesus has just experienced the scourging. In fact, the uh, Josephus, the historian, says and there was no prescribed number of blows. So who knows? In that environment with the kind of, kind of response that Jesus got from the religious leaders, maybe, maybe he just got really worn out by this. Now, can you picture that person now being ridiculed and being made fun of? What kind of bully mindset would go that way with someone like that? It was... Prior to, right after the scourging, right before the cross, that these, this Roman legion stopped to say, let's have some sport with this guy. Let's have some sadistic fun with, with Jesus and say, hail, king of the Jews, here's your crown. And they stuff a, a crown of thorns on his head and they put a fake robe around his back. And they, I would imagine, even in their cries of hail to the king, it was probably with laughter. Guys pretending to cower like you're some kind of authority, only to mock him more. And here's the silent servant. Here is God, the Son, the creator of the world, staying quiet, experiencing the ridicule. Now, I just want you to picture that in your mind. Hundreds, hundreds of soldiers mocking the king. The creator left heaven, came to this world to take on flesh, to suffer for mockers everywhere. For you and me, the times that we've mocked him, with our lives, maybe with our words. That's why he came. 
cross is a story of ridicule. It's also a story of, of suffering. Verses 21 through 25. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Just the beatings that Jesus has endured has left him too weak to carry his own crossbeam. That's why here now this uh, Simon has been called into duty, verse 21. And they offered Jesus at that moment what was considered a, a, a kind of a primitive narcotic at the time. He would take myrrh and you would mix it with wine. They would drink it to try to take the edge off of what's about to come. You're going to go to the cross. It's going to hurt. So let's, let's numb it a little bit. Jesus refuses it. Our Lord wanted to face the horror of the cross, every bit of it, all of it in submission to the Father's will. Everything he was doing was clear in his mind and intentional, prepared to accept it all. In this one text, there is three references to the crucifixion of Jesus. Crucified means to be nailed to a stake. Um, we get our English word excruciating from the Latin for crucifixion. The point of crucifixion, everyone knew it. It is the most painful way to die. Now, all of us, I've been walking around here, I see people with their feet up and casts on, and we all know pain, right? Everyone has said, I've broken bones myself, I've got bulging discs in my neck, I've burned myself. That's not pain. This is pain. Nothing compares to the horrendous nature of this crucifixion. The Roman philosopher Cicero said that every totalitarian regime needs a terror apparatus, and the crucifixion was Rome's. And it was infamous for its infliction of pain and for its struggle. About 20 years ago, I had someone, probably longer than that, probably 25 years ago, someone read to me a doctor's take on the crucifixion. And uh, it can be brutal, so I've cut out the brutal parts, but I thought it'd be worth just seeing it read. And I want you to picture the suffering of Jesus from a doctor's viewpoint. The heavy beam of the cross is then tied across his shoulders and the procession of the condemned Christ, two thieves in the execution detail, begins its slow journey. The weight of the heaven, heavy wooden beam together with the shock produced by copious blood loss is too much. He stumbles and he falls. The rough wood of the beam gouges into the lacerated skin and muscles of the shoulders. He tries to rise, but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. At Golgotha, the beam is placed on the ground, and Jesus is quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow for some movement. The beam is then lifted in place at the top of the posts, and with the title reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed in place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven to the arc of each foot. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. And there, again, there is a searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over his muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to 
get even one short breath. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rendering cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. And then another agony begins. A deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making their frantic effort to grasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain and Jesus gasps, I thirst. This is real. And this is suffering. At the highest level of suffering, so it stands to reason that we should ask the question, why, why would anybody go through that? Do you know the answer? Some of you do. The answer is love. The only answer we have from Scripture, the only answer that makes any sense, something in him compelled him. And the Bible says it was, it was love. For the sake of his people. Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John says in 1 John 3, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Have you ever tried to tell somebody that you really love how much you love them? All of us have, right? If you haven't, you should try it. I've had uh, two sons get married in the last month, so I've been exercising a lot of describing how I feel. And, and I'm not shy to describe it, but here's what I've experienced. I can't do a good job. Like, I love you. I really love you. I really love you a lot. I love you so much. I mean it. I mean every bit of it, but it sort of runs out of like a way to tell it. It's more than that. It's more than what I just told you. Nothing could explain the depth, the width, the breadth. Nothing could tell of the commitment of God's love for sinners better than this. If God was going to preach a sentence about his affections for us, the cross would be the sentence. Does it make sense? It is the most clearest way. The message of the cross is a story of ridicule. It's a story of suffering. But I want you to notice in verse 26 to 32, it's also a story of sin. A story of sin. Verse 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews was the placard on the cross over Jesus' head. John adds a little bit of color to that where uh, Herod placed not only 
in Greek, but in Latin and Aramaic. It was in all the languages. Everyone could read what he was accused of. In fact, it was so offensive and so clear that the Sanhedrin came and said, listen, you can't say king of the Jews. Simply say he said he was king of the Jews. That's going to help us in our arguments in the future. And then it's very interesting that Pilate answers and says, I've written what I've written. A better way to read that is what I've written will always be written. How unbelievable from this man comes this statement about the absolute certainty of who Jesus is. He is the king of the Jews. Let it always be written from a man who couldn't perceive his way out of a wet bag about who Jesus was. So it was under that cross and under that sign against the perfect backdrop of God's amazing love is man's wickedness seen more clearly than ever before. They hated Jesus. They hated him. They hated everything he stood for. They knew he did nothing wrong. They knew it. They knew it was a sham court. They knew they had false witnesses. They knew what they wanted to do, and they did it to protect themselves. They worried about their authority and their wisdom being challenged and his holy life as it exposed their unholy life, and he had to go. And so they uh, crucified him. And just picture this, with Jesus' pulverized body hanging there, there's still no conviction. Now, I have in my lifetime committed more sins than I could ever count, okay? I could not imagine myself doing something so horrendous out loud and not somewhere in this going, I can't believe I did that. Maybe I should reconsider. This man's innocent after all. Nothing. Nothing registers. No shame, no guilt, just taunts. That's how far their heart had gone against Jesus. Verse 29 says that those who passed by derided him. You might have a version that says hurled insults at him. That's really what it means. The Greek for that word is blasphemy. So interesting, again, that the very charge that Jesus is being supposedly crucified for is really what the leaders are guilty of. Very interesting. And they throw threats and they throw challenges. In verse 30 and 32, save yourself, Jesus. You claim to be God. Come, come down from the cross. Do it and we'll believe in you. That's the, that's the challenge. Their uh, darkness, their sinful hearts is so cloudy that they miss the moment completely. And by the way, instead of us pointing the finger at these folks, most people miss the point completely. Some of you are 50, 60, whatever years old, and you've heard about Jesus your whole life. You've heard about the suffering servant, but you, you mock him. He's not worthy of your worship. You play him down. You say, good man, not God. Oh, okay. And so they, they challenge him. And their problem is with what's going on. They thought, gods don't do this. Gods don't hang on a cross willingly. If you're God, you would certainly have the power to come down and prove it to everybody. They didn't know that he was going there intentionally, and nothing could have pulled him from that cross. But they thought, that's not godlike. The other mistake they made is they thought that the problem that they had was a lack of evidence. They didn't see the problem as inside. Do some miracle, Jesus, and we'll believe. All we need is a miracle. Now, let me stop for a second and make a point. I don't think these, these folks invented this idea, nor is, it, nor is it exclusive to them. I'll bet 
there's somebody here who has said or does say, God, do something big and I'll believe. And let me just break the bad news to you. No, you won't. No, no, you won't. Sin has so twisted the mind of man, every man, every woman, that unless God doesn't intervene, divine intervention, to open our blind eyes, we will never perceive, never see Jesus. There isn't a miracle on the planet that will turn my eyes towards him. For example, all you have to do is look at these men. They followed Jesus for three years. They saw him give sight to the blind They saw him give new skin to lepers. They saw him raise the crippled and the dead, and they still didn't believe. They don't need a miracle to have faith. They got to have faith to see the miracle. Do you see that? The miracle of Jesus is seen through believing eyes, not the other way around. God doesn't have to do a show for you to convince you. The issue is here. The stubbornness is here. If God could come down right now and take on flesh and say, let me tell you who I am, we'd kill him. That's the condition of the heart. And to make a point about Mark's intention through this whole gospel, the faith that Mark's gospel wants for us isn't a faith compelled by sight. He's never asked us to see the good works and the miracles of Jesus and believe. He's been kind of obviously void of telling all the miracles. Other gospel writers tell more. Mark has portrayed a suffering Jesus, a humble Jesus, a broken Jesus for for us and in our sin, right? He's not compelling us to believe in something we see. He's asking us for a faith to be compelled by Jesus, just Jesus. The picture of his humility and his suffering and his love and his forgiveness, that's what Mark wants us to see. Remember I told you early on that I would give you another guarantee? Winter camp is one. (laughs) Here's the second one. If you see the humble Jesus, I guarantee you'll see a miracle. At least one. You know what it is? New life. If you see the humble, suffering Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for sin like yours, then you will be, what the scriptures say, born again. New eyes, a new heart doesn't mean your life will be all hunky-dory. doesn't mean all the sickness will go away or you'll get rich or everything will work out and you'll have an answer for everything. It just means there'll be a Lord over all in your life. Do you understand? That's what the scriptures say. So the message of the cross tells a story of ridicule and suffering and sin, but notice in verses 33 to 36 that it's also a story of transaction and victory and invitation. 33 through 36 And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Let me uh, talk about the transaction. Hanging here in this three-hour darkness is the most unbelievable cosmic transaction to ever take place. All of the sins of all the people who would put their faith and trust in Jesus was put on Jesus as if he committed it. All of it. And all of the wrath of God stored up against that sin. Right wrath, a justice 
was poured out on Jesus as well. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 said it this way, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might have and become the righteousness of God. Isaiah said it in Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I know you've heard this before, but, and I probably even said it. What if, you know, what if we could make a movie of all your secrets and all your sins? What, what if there was a way to tell all the stuff that we keep down, the things that we think about and the motives of what we do and just portray it, every one of us, shamed, head down, all of that. You know, the stuff you would never tell anybody, that stuff. Every sin, church. Every lie and every manipulation and every dark secret. All the anger, all the cheating, all the ugly addictions, everything you could possibly fathom was poured out on Christ right there. Wave after wave of the world's sin poured over the sinless soul of Jesus for three hours there. Drinking every drop of God's wrath and not one of our sins, not one of my sins could be ignored. He took it all. Unbelievable transaction that somehow God could transfer from you and me and all who would believe all of my guilt and shame and Jesus bore it as if it was his. There's another wonderful part of this cosmic transaction that Paul talks about in Philippians 3 and that is his righteousness provided to me. Not only is God fully satisfied at all of his wrath exacted on Christ, but what I need that he requires, you must be holy as I am holy, is freely given through Christ, his righteousness to me. He was an innocent man who became guilt, and I'm a guilty man who became innocent through Jesus. Holy as Christ, based on the imputation of God for us. Do you understand? A transaction, a swapping, a, a transfer. This story of the cross is about a transaction, but let me add to that. In verse 37, it tells us that Jesus uttered a loud cry. John in his gospel tells us what the cry was It's finished, it's over. It's a story of victory. Everything, and I mean everything that separated us from God, Jesus took care of that day. Satan the deceiver, sin and death were all defeated right here at this moment. You've heard me say this before, and I'm going to repeat myself until we get it, but Jesus didn't die to make your salvation a possibility. He died to make it a certainty. There are some people who talk about this moment as if Jesus really said, I've done my part. The rest is up to you. It's not what Jesus said. What do you say? It's finished. Everything you who confess Christ need to be covered by his righteousness and your sin dealt with, it's over. Taken care of. Everything. He did not die to leave it to you to figure out the rest. He didn't die with, oh, I hope they make the right choice. Blind people who wouldn't perceive him wouldn't make the right choice. He did it all, and he finished it, and he rested. That's the reality of the cross. It's a victory cry. It is not a possibility. There's another aspect of this gospel message that tells a story, and it's a story of invitation. In verse 38, the text tells us that the temple curtain was torn in two, Although the scriptures don't tell us anywhere which temple specifically Mark or the other gospels are pointing to, most writers have always said that what it's referring to is the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place in the temple. Holy of Holies is the 
place where the priests went once a year at the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifices. And this place was always separated by this giant curtain, 60 feet long, 30 feet high, four inches thick. The writers, the history writers say it took 300 priests to manipulate it. That's how big, that's how heavy, and it split from the top to the bottom at the crucifixion. Clearly, there's a miracle there. But I want you to kind of move away from the miracle of a curtain being torn in two, and I want you to see the greater miracle, and that's the miracle of the illustration and the reality of what happened. This is, this is the profound part of it, and Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews chapter 10 talks about this miracle. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The miracle of miracles is that you and I get access to God total separation in our sin and now the curtain has been torn the signifying just come on in get all as close as you want Abba Daddy get all the way in he's your father without Jesus separated as we should be in our sin and unrighteousness with Jesus he takes our sin he gives us his holiness and watch this best part of the whole gospel story we get God we get him made in his image to know him and to find our joy in him and our purpose in him. We finally get him through Jesus. That's the miracle of miracles. It's access. There's an interesting thought. I think it's worth mentioning in James Edwards' commentary on the Gospel of Mark. He suggests that the, that the curtain that torn in two possibly wasn't the Holy of Holy curtains. In fact, he, he suggests that it might be the curtain separating the Gentiles uh, from the Jewish court. <laughs> Now, here's why I think it's interesting. Here's what he says. The only curtain visible to a Gentile centurion was the outer curtain, not the curtain before the Holy of Holies. It was the tearing of the outer curtain that enabled him to confess Jesus as Lord. In other words, Mark writing to a Roman audience, right? That's where this gospel is going. He's doing what he's done a hundred times before, and we've seen it and said it every time. This gospel is for outsiders, now, I don't think it jeopardizes whichever curtain it was because it has to be both for any of us to be there, right? Outsiders brought in and all the way in, all the way to the Father. It's both equally true. We get access to him by faith in Christ alone. Let me finish, two minutes, let me finish with one last story this gospel message tells, and that is the story of salvation. Verses, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he had breathed his last, he said, truly this man is the son of God. The cross of Jesus is, is more than just about suffering and death. That's a part of it. But the cross of Jesus does for us what it did for this Roman centurion and what it does for anyone who would believe the cross of Jesus is the one and only exclusive way to God the Father. You know, our world and our culture presents um, options. The only missing ingredient to these options is you're being sincere. Just be sincere. Whatever option you pick, that's not what Jesus says. The cross says, uh-uh, one way. It's a narrow way. If you find it, it comes through Jesus. 
period. Now, you might say, well, that's intolerant and that's kind of harsh. No, it's not if it's real. If it's true, it's what you need to hear. If it's the cure to your spiritual cancer, somebody needs to tell you. Jesus is the only way. And, by the way, it's the cross that evokes the confession from this centurion. That's the Son of God. He wasn't impressed by a miracle. He wasn't sitting there going, let me fathom all the things that Jesus has done. He's simply watching the suffering Lord on the cross, and he goes, that's it. It's the point that Mark's been making from the very beginning. Free from all the distractions of all the miracles of which he did do, he simply wants us to see Jesus, the humble, giving, suffering, sacrificial servant of God, come willingly and intentionally to die for you and your sins. So, Mark has been asking us to believe that from chapter 1, verse 1. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Everything that you've heard, if you've been here for 10 months, everything you've heard has been pointing that way of a suffering servant dying for you. So let me finish with two thoughts. If before when I mentioned the separation between those who really confess Jesus and those who don't, if that's your assessment of your life, that you're, you're not a, a believer or haven't been a believer, then my question to you, does the beauty of his suffering and his humility cause you to say, as the centurion said, that's the son of God? There's better arguers, there's better preachers. I don't feel dependent on either of that. Did God show up in this meeting And did he look you in the heart and say, that's the Lord of glory? And will you believe? That's the call. Simple, as easy as it can be. Did God call you to trust in this suffering servant? If he has, then praise God. Confess him as Lord and leave your sins behind. And he's yours and you get God. If you're a believer, and I'm assuming there's a lot of us in here, doesn't that compel your love? Does anything else work? I mean, this should compel some serious responses. And, and by the way, I'm not talking about words here. You know, there's a way to love him verbally. There's a way to love him with our lives. And I think that's the whole point of Jesus as, as the king of glory. Loving him with our lives. So let me ask you a question. What are you holding on to? In other words, what are you using as a Jesus replacement? I, I have done this from time to time. I'm not thinking clearly, and if I'm being selfish, I go someplace else. So let's just all in the same boat say this. What is the Jesus replacement we're dealing with right now? I want Jesus in happiness. I want Jesus in wealth. I want Jesus in a wife. I want Jesus in a husband. I want Jesus and 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 a health, whatever it might be. What is your Jesus plus stuff? If the cross of Christ does anything... If you're really going to look at it, it ruins us for anything else. Jesus is all we want. And, and I get it. There are times we get confused and we go the wrong place. But at this moment, when we're clearly focusing on the beauty and the worth of Christ given to us by faith, is there anything else we need? Just say it. Is there anything else we need? No. Mark that down in your little calendar there. You know, made that call right here in November. We don't need him. Anything else? We need Jesus. Amen? Amen. Him for us. Amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ our Savior, who came to this world to die for us. And we are now sitting here 2,000 years later, 
receiving and believing and accepting that truth and walking in the freedom he provides. God, we confess that anything else we've chased after is an idol and it's false. We trust in Jesus, the risen Jesus, the suffering Jesus, the humble Jesus, and no other. He is our hope and he is our life and he is our salvation. That is what we confess. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.